It's good to see you here tonight. And uh, as I mentioned in my prayer, we have been um, pursuing on these Sunday evenings uh, a theme of what it means to be a church on the move. And in our first two weeks, I took the first week, talked about the whole idea of movement, of the church. There's this whole aspect of movement in the whole idea of the concept of church. Uh, we, we looked at some verses. We're going to look at some of those again tonight. But last week, um, Mike picked up the theme of the mission of God in the world, of God uh, in his, in his uh, promise through Abraham to take his blessing to the nations um, through the descendants of Abraham. And we see that coming to uh, fulfillment. What was promised and impartial in the Old Testament comes to fulfillment in the new and the person of Jesus Christ. So we kind of had this ongoing developing theme, if you will, of being on the move, looking at that and looking that we are an agent as the church. We are God's primary means by which he brings glory to himself in the world. And that's just so important for us to grasp. I hope it gives you a sense of your importance and how the Apostle Paul says to live a life worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Um, but as again, I said, that we're here for God's glory. We're here to pursue God's mission. We're God's agent in pursuit of his mission for his glory. And so when we think about it that way, as we're going to kind of narrow it down a little bit tonight, we're going to be talking about God's power. And when we think about being that agent, being that um, vehicle through which God brings glory to himself in the world, it's not something to say that he's delegated to us as a church to do for him. Kind of like, here's your task, you go about doing it. Rather, it's an invitation. It's an invitation to be used by him as he works in and through us by his power. It's not that he gives us a task and then says, go get it done. He says, I want to invite you into my mission. I want to invite you into what I'm doing in the world and accomplish my will through you. And then you, you know me better. You rejoice in me even more and, and the world is blessed. And if we think about it, if the church is meant to be the vehicle through which God brings himself glory in the world today, if God's glory, if we think of it as the manifestation of his greatness and his majesty, um, as Andrew preached this morning, he talked about honoring and glory, and it's this concept of weight. You think of the weightiness of something, then what else but God's power would be capable of producing such a display? What else but God's power could produce something that actually points to who he is? That's actually worthy of him. So as we continue this theme of being on the move, God being on the move through us as a church, God being on the move for his glory, that we're with him on his mission, tonight we need to talk about that the only way for that to happen is for it to happen in God's power, in God's power working in us and through us. So again, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to turn again to some of the same pages in the New Testament uh, and continue tracing some of the same lines, but from this perspective now. At first, if we looked at these verses from the perspective of movement, and Mike last week looked at it from the perspective of mission, tonight we're going to look at it from the issue of God's power. And my aim tonight is not so much to make the point that this is right, which it is, it is a right point that we do things in God's power, but for us to realize this is not something that's just theoretical, it's not something that you come here tonight and say, wow, wasn't that interesting, but then has no bearing or, or um, angle on which we go about our lives and ministry, that it should transform the way we uh, appreciate how we as King's Church, in a sense, 
Not just are men to do things, but the posture from which we do it. Have you ever noticed how over the course of time in, in one church or across multiple churches, the same things can be done by different people, but it gives a different result or even just a different feel, for lack of a better word. That someone could get up and preach and maybe everything is technically accurate, but there's just something not quite of God in it. There's not this sense of God's power on display. And so we're going to think about some of that. So we've already noted some essential elements about the whole idea of movement um, as it applies to the church and God's kingdom. And part of that, we looked at the Great Commission, how Jesus left his disciples with a mandate for this ever-expanding ministry of multiplications. He says, go in my authority and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so this idea of ever-expanding, of movement. But recall how Jesus said in, in Matthew 16, he says, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So again, if, if this whole idea of movement and it's God doing it, Jesus is building his church, by implication, it's his power, that's the means by which it's accomplished. He didn't tell Peter, go build something in my name. He didn't tell Peter, go do this for me. He said, rather, Peter, this is what I'm going to do in you and through you and everyone else who would believe. I mentioned a few weeks ago how this harkens back to an Old Testament passage about David wanting to build a house for the Lord, wanting to build a temple for him. But the Lord's response to David, if you remember, is that he will build a house, actually, for David, promising that David's descendants would rule on the throne. Now, this passage is 2 Samuel chapter 7. I want to just read it again because he says, The Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, if you were here that night, you may remember me saying there was a, a near and partial fulfillment in David's physical, immediate physical son, Solomon. But a greater fulfillment would be realized, a distant fulfillment in the coming of the Messiah. How he establishes his kingdom forever in the coming of Jesus. But notice in both instances, both near and far, partial and greater, you know, promise and fulfillment, it was God's power that is at work to build something for somebody else that would ultimately be for his glory. Did you catch that? And so in the context of Jesus saying, I'm going to build my church, that didn't happen in a vacuum, like I said. And it goes back to the Old Testament where God himself said, I will build a house. And if he's building it, it's done by his power and ultimately for his glory. So this idea is what was captured when Jesus said, I will build my church in Matthew chapter 16. But we can also connect this idea of Jesus building his church in his power with a different conversation he had with his disciples in John's gospel. If you want to turn to John's gospel chapter 14, we're going to be there in just a moment. And they'll be on the side screens as well. 
But this is part of John's gospel known as the Upper Room Discourse. And it records Jesus' last interactions with his disciples before going to the cross. Now, you may be aware there is an upper room in this building. That's not the room of which we are speaking. But that one is named after this room, the room where Jesus observed the the Last Supper and had this interaction with his his disciples. And over... um, over several chapters, you know, before going to the cross, Jesus predicts his betrayal, going to the cross, and the return to the Father. And he comforts the disciples with the promise to prepare a place for them and return to bring them to be with him. And at this moment, one of his disciples named Philip makes a request and he says, Lord, would just show us the Father and that's enough. And in response, Jesus says something that is, I hope I'm not overselling this, absolutely extraordinary for several different reasons. He makes a statement, and it's about the continuity of what had been done through Jesus by the Father in his public ministry. This picks up in John's Gospel, chapter 14, uh, verse 10. I'm not sure if all of this will be on the side screens, but it will pick up the very relevant parts. So in response to this request for him to show them the Father, he says, Don't you believe that I am in the Father, And that the Father is in me. The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the work themselves. Now, start listening if you haven't been. (laughs) Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. So all of Jesus' public ministry, the teaching, the healing, the driving out of demons, all of this, it, it, it's evidence. It gives testimony to the fact that the promised rule of the, the greater son of David that I was reading about in 2 Samuel had dawned. Remember Jesus came and he says, repent, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is here. But perhaps even more amazing is what Jesus declared about what would continue through the disciples and those who would believe through them. Because he says the power and authority that he had demonstrated in the works he had done in dependence upon the Father. Because remember he said it was the Father working in him. Even the incarnate Son of God, as he lived his human life, he lived in dependence of what the Father was doing through him. He said that would continue to be on display through the ministry of his disciples. And if we were to carry it even further, that that is through the life and ministry of the church because he says, those who will believe also until he returns. He says that aspects of what will be accomplished in this way will exceed what he accomplished in his earthly ministry in the flesh. So I hope you see when I said at the beginning that this is absolutely extraordinary, that it really is. That Jesus is saying there's this entity that he's going to build this called out group of people the church of people called by his name for his purposes to display God's glory in the world and display his mission and he says through this group of people there will be even more accomplished for my glory until I return than what I even did myself when I walked the earth 
That's extraordinary. How can any of this be possible? Because it's the same mission. Because it's still a matter of God's mission to bring blessing to the nations going forward for his glory and in his power. And how can that power continue to be at work while God the Son is no longer on this earth in the flesh? Because of the promise Jesus made about his Holy Spirit. Jesus promised the coming of God the Holy Spirit upon his return to the Father. And so when we think about God's mission, on God's mission for God's glory in this world, in God's power, the power of God for his mission comes from the presence of God through his Holy Spirit. The power of God for his mission comes, through, uh, comes from the presence of God through the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said the Spirit would come and live with and in the followers of, of him. And he says empowering them in ministry in the name of Jesus. So as this upper room discourse continues over chapters really 13, 14, 15, 16 uh, into 17... Jesus uses a metaphor that perhaps you're familiar with if you've been around church for any length of time. He says about a vine and branches. To capture this concept and impress it upon our imagination. He says this in John chapter 15 verses 5 through 8. Remember this is all the same conversation he's having with them. He says, I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. See, the imagery of the vine presses home a simple truth. Branches have no life and no power to produce anything useful in and of themselves. That's why if you have a vine growing on something that you don't want to be there, one of the easiest ways to get rid of it is to sever it right where it comes out of the ground because everything past that point won't be able to sustain. No matter how alive it looks, it has no real power in it. Branches must remain vitally connected to the life-giving power that comes from the vine. Now, a clear aspect of remaining in Jesus is that what we talk about frequently around here, the terms of being in an ever-deepening relationship with him, that we desire to know him, that we want to spend time with him, that we want to be like him. And if you've walked with Jesus for any time, you know there is great personal benefit in that, that there's the, the benefit we derive, the value, the comfort that we derive from that, but there is a danger of missing the forest for the trees in terms of growing closer to Jesus. Because as we read the, the upper room discourse, we cannot really be deepening in our walk with him without engaging with what he came to do. I want to say that again just to let it land because sometimes there can be this tension between when we think of church and ministry that, well, you know, we really want to produce deep, committed followers of Jesus which we do. But as I read John's gospel, what he's saying here is really 
deep, connected followers of Jesus are deeply motivated and moved by what he wants to accomplish in the world. You see, intimacy with Jesus, remaining in him, is expressed in engagement with the mission of God to bless the nations and bring them under into his rule and reign. Remaining in Jesus entails engagement and involvement with how he is moving toward the world with the good news of forgiveness and life in him. See, notice how this is tied back to the verses we just read in John chapter 14. You remember when he was trying to comfort his disciples and in John chapter 14, verse 13, he, he said the promise, ask for anything in my name. Right? And here in the vine and the branches, he, he states it again. He says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Don't pluck those out of their their context. Remember, he made that promise in the context of his work being carried forward through his disciples. And now he restates the promise of asking and receiving when the aim in asking is to be fruitful or effective for the Father's glory. He says, ask anything. It's to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. And I think it's challenging. I don't know if you do to consider that Jesus ties the depth of my walk with him with a bold desire in me that is willing to ask him for anything to see that move forward. Do you see the the connection he's making there? To be bold enough to be empowered by him through the work of the Holy Spirit so as to be fruitful and effective in more and more people coming into his kingdom. That's, That's the context of all this. And so as we, we think about this idea of we've been talking about movement, Mike talked about mission, we talked about all this being for the glory of God, all of that can only happen as we read these verses through the power of God. He is the one who is building his church. He is the one who invites us to abide in him and let him work his power in us and through us that he might accomplish what he wants to through us for his mission in this world. So we, we looked at that aspect over the last few weeks. We looked at it now from the power of God. We've also been, we're going to be spending more time over the next few weeks in the book of Acts. And we did look at the book of Acts a few weeks ago when we introduced this series. And I want us to turn there again because the book of Acts helps us to see how the things Jesus was telling the disciples about in the upper room discourse. It's kind of like the trailer, you know, looking for something to watch on Friday night, you're going through Prime or Netflix and you come to the trailer and say, do I really want to watch this? And you click on the trailer for a bit and say, okay. Gives you a preview of what's to come, a taste. And that's what Jesus was doing in the upper room discourse. He was telling the disciples, here's here's what's going to happen. I'm leaving. The Spirit is going to come. We'll pick up. Let's let's look. In Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 verse 6 we'll start at. It says the disciples gathered around him. I'm going to turn there myself. Excuse me one second. The disciples gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, a few weeks ago, we looked at these verses 
from the angle of movement. How is it movement? Because it's going from Jerusalem to all of Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. But before that is this prerequisite that Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Exactly what he was talking about in the upper room discourse. Here we see in action what Jesus had spoken of. The Holy Spirit would come. And the Holy Spirit would empower them to carry the mission forward. Acts, <clears throat> the full name, is called the Acts of the Apostles. And it traces the early movement of the church, all right, as its influence and presence spreads. We just said, from Jerusalem, throughout the nearby regions, to the ends of the known world through the ministry of the apostles. But some have said that you could just as easily call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because none of this happens, all that we read, none of this happens without him. And as you read through the pages of the book of Acts, power becomes a key issue, both implicitly and explicitly, as the book of Acts develops. It's implicit in light of Jesus' statement that we just read. Because what did he say about the disciples? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit, so that everything we read now, once the Holy Spirit comes, we need to read in light of that. It's all happening because of the presence of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit. But it's explicit. We can find it explicitly, not just implicitly. One of the things we see is in the interrogation of Peter and John. When you come to John, uh, Acts chapter 3 and 4, there is a healing in the temple of a man who was lame, who was crippled. And he's begging, and they said, you know, we don't have any gold or silver, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Stand up and walk, and he does, and he's healed. And the religious leaders are upset, and they begin to interrogate Peter and John. They had Peter and John, it says, as we turn to Acts chapter 4, I'll go there too. And um, it starts in verse 10, no, I'm sorry, in verse 7. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. And what's their question? By what power? What name? What authority did you do this? Just, by the way, be reminded, what did Jesus say before he sent his disciples out in this ever-expanding ministry of multiplication of disciples? He said, all authority is mine in heaven and on earth. The power is his. So how does Peter respond? They say, can I have a few days and get back to you just so I can put my thoughts together and tell you how, you know, we got this ministry plan in order and all this. No, he says, Peter, how? Filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the upper room discourse coming into life. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame, and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved." And it says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus.
Now, I want you to note all the direct statements and allusions to the power at work in this instance. I mean, I mentioned some of them, how they even interrogating by what power, but it says Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. And then do you see the trans, you may not be familiar, but the disciples after the crucifixion of Jesus were not a lot that you would say were characterized by authority and power. They were in hiding. They were fearful. They were not bold. They were not strong. And so as you read this, something has to account for the power and the authority that comes out in them. Note how they even say they were astonished. They saw the courage of Peter and John and they realized these are just ordinary guys. I mean, in the big picture of things, they would be Look no different, you know, uh, Trev Pierce was talking at the men's thing last night saying if Jesus came to Chesington, he would look no different than anyone else on Hook Parade. He'd probably be driving a white van with ladders on top, right? I mean, that's how he would, how he would appear. And that's, you know, that's Peter and John. They were fishermen. They were tradesmen. They were unschooled, ordinary men. The boldness and courage and authority seen in Peter, two ordinary men, where did it come from? Where do we say? It came from the Holy Spirit. From his power at work. And it pointed to Jesus. They pointed to the power of Jesus to raise a lame man to walk. And the power of Jesus as the only means by which people can be saved from their sin. It wasn't power for power's sake. It was power pointing to Jesus. In powerful ways. And when we consider then what it means to be the church... As we've been talking about it, a movement, God's mission, that we exist not for ourselves, but for Him and for His glory and to accomplish something. That as we talk about having an ever-deepening relationship with Jesus, it means we're more engaged with what He wants to do in the world, not simply our own comfort and development. When we consider all that, we cannot ignore that it has to be his power that is at work in us. So we see that in the upper room discourse. We see that playing out in the book of Acts. But we also spent some time in the book of Ephesians a few weeks ago. And I want to go back there. Ephesians chapter 1. And um, to help kind of shape our understanding. Particularly that the church exists to reveal God's glory. We've talked about that. Make sure my notes are on her. Yep. <clears throat> And so it's no wonder when we think about this, a few weeks ago when I talked about the church existing for God's glory, that's why we're here, not only in the earthly realm, all right? So for people, there should, this place, our gathering, our ministry, our functioning together is meant to be a bit of a sample of, of what life in God's kingdom can be like and a signpost pointing to Jesus about how it can all be experienced. But there's another dynamic at work that God says through the church, his wisdom is made known to the heavenly realms. He's talking about a spiritual world out there, that what happens in and through this place, as people are brought under the rule and reign of Jesus and their lives are transformed and we worship him and we serve him and we grow in community together, that that is a declaration to the heavenly realms about the power and wisdom of God. And so... As Paul develops this incredible letter, the book of Ephesians, it's no wonder that he expresses a prayer for the Ephesians. That could be for us as well. 
to know and understand the role of God's power in this great calling. In chapter 1, verse 17, he says, um, he's praying for them, and he says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you this spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. They're like, oh, there we go, ever-deepening relationship with Jesus, right? But wait. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and here it comes, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power... The power that is to be at work among us, he says, is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion. And every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Here he is painting this epic, grand, cosmic identity of what it means to be the church we're here for his glory not only in this world but in a spiritual world we reveal it and he says is there any wonder that that should put us on our face before the father and say help us to fully grasp the power that you have ordained to be at work within us for this task that is not a task you've delegated to us and they say just go go get to it do it in your best strength you know no says I'm inviting you into a mission and there's a power that I have that's to be at work in you and through you beyond your imagining the same power this rattles my categories when I think about this the same power that raised Christ from the dead is the power that's to be at work in and through us as a church in ministry for his glory on his mission to see more and more people come into his kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ this prayer gets reiterated. It's like it's, it's constantly living in the back of, of Paul's mind as he writes the book of Ephesians. Because in chapter 3, verse 20, we closed in prayer with it this morning as Kate prayed for us. She said, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. He keeps coming back. He says, this is who you are, and this is why his power matters. You exist for God's glory. You exist to demonstrate his wisdom to the world. You need his power. God is on the move. That's a theme we've been pursuing through his church for his mission, and it's in his power. And I'll come back to that question that we kind of broached at the beginning of this. If God's glory is the manifestation of his greatness and majesty then what else but his power would be capable of producing that? If you think about it, if you, if you have ever attempted to work out or lift weights, the only reason this comes to mind to me is because glory is that idea of weightiness. And maybe, you know, some of you don't aspire to be power lifters in the room or anything like that, you know. But if, if you try to do anything active or, or, you know, I was trying to do, I'll have to confess, I was trying to do pull-ups this week and it's pretty sorry pretty sorry display my goal is to get to 10 if I can just get to 10 by 50 I'd be really happy all right I got about a year to accomplish that but there comes this point where my strength just fails 
Matter, and I've realized there's some ways to overcome that, you know, but we realize there's, there's limits to our strength. And what Paul is saying here, when we think of the church and we think about the ministry and we think about the mission, there is no limit to what God can do. There is a power at work. And only that is capable of producing something that displays his greatness. We can accomplish lots of things that says, wow, there's some pretty smart people. There's some nice people. But we're not capable of producing anything that says God's at work among them. Only he can do that. And if we think about that promise of Jesus that I mentioned earlier, when he says the gates of Hades will not overcome the church in its mission, we need to know that his promise is dependent on his power to make it a reality. Now we just go rushing off and say, hey, let's go charge the gates of hell because Jesus says it's going to work. He says, no, it's a dependency upon him. We've been called into a battle for which we are completely helpless and in many ways dangerous on our own. We can be like a kid with a power tool. I wanted to have a cartoon up. I did a, a far side cartoon a few weeks ago. One of my favorite ones from the far side is, it says, you know, had a picture of the Vikings with their spears and everything, and then another Viking ship, and instead of a dragon on the sail, has a daisy, and all the guys have pillows. And it says, though they're very skilled with their arsenal, the Wimpedites were frequent targets of the Vikings for marauding, you know. And we can kind of be like that when we go off on our own. We're swinging our pillows around thinking it's going to accomplish something. When we think about what it is we've actually been called to do, and I'll just frame it this way now, what opposes us, or shall I say, who opposes us, that we should recognize how foolish it is to go forward in our own power. We've been called into a battle for which we are completely helpless on our own, but we're not on our own. And that's the point. Because as Paul concludes his letter, he comes back to that concept one more time. It's been running through the whole way through. And he says in chapter 6, you'll know these verses, some of you. Finally, in light of all of this and all he's called them to be and do, be strong in the Lord and in what? His mighty power. Not your own strength. Not your own wisdom. Not your own resource. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Do you remember what Jesus said the church exists to do? To demonstrate the power and wisdom of God in the heavenly realms. And when we as creatures who are made in his image to rule and reign with him and under him work together for his mission in his power for his glory and he does it in us and through us, it sends a message in the heavenly realms that he's defeated and that Jesus will rule and reign. So when we think about all of this, Jesus is, is on the move for his mission in his church to build his church. The gates of Hades shall not prevail against it as we go in his power for his purposes and for his mission. What are some takeaways? I'm not going to get extremely practical here. I want to just capture an attitude. And I don't mean like where I grew up in New Jersey, an attitude. I mean like a, a posture of how we go about life, how we go about ministry. 
There's two sides to it, I think. And one, I think, comes easy for us in church world, so to speak. And that is simply this. We talk about it all the time. We even demonstrate it in prayer in different ways. Humble dependence, right? It cries out for humble dependence. That we realize nothing we do is in our own power. Nothing we do is in our own strength. Everything, all the glory belongs to him. But I fear there's a flip side to humble dependence that we, we can camp there and miss that there's something so much more that we're meant to embrace. I don't know how to express it exactly. I tried some different expressions this afternoon, so I'm just going to land some of these on you. I want to say like a hungry dissatisfaction. What's that mean? That doesn't sound very pleasant. A hungry dissatisfaction. That sounds like you've missed a few meals or something. I mean, you're not okay with a state of affairs where someone is lost and without him. Where there's brokenness that the gospel speaks to and brings healing. That there's a mission we're meant to be engaged upon and we're not going to be satisfied with just an, an easy, self-kind-of-driven spiritual walk with Jesus. Because if I'm deepening in my walk with Him, my heart will resonate with what resonates with His heart and His purposes in this world. Maybe a better way to put it is a hungry determination you know, that you're not satisfied. You're not satisfied that there's people that you know who need to be here, who need to know him. I was thinking in light of all of this, and when we think about God's power, we can just, instead of taking our foot off the accelerator, <laughs> I think what it's meant to do is to make us just put the accelerator down a little bit harder to ask for anything in his name. I thought of two quotes from historic British voices of missions. <laughs> I'll put it that way. C.T. Studd. Have you guys ever heard of C.T. Studd? The old cricket star who, um, I want to make sure I get this quote right, so I'm bringing it up. Um, oops, Sorry. Now I can't find it. I'm so sorry. But what, here's basically what he said. He said, there's a lot of people who want to be within the sounds of the church bell or the chapel bell. And he said, I'd rather set up a rescue shop within one yard of hell. Here's a guy who in humble dependence said he, he could have had a very easy, comfortable life. But he was hungry and dissatisfied. See, this idea of God's power working in us and through us, William Carey, another British missionary who went to, to India, put it this way. When you're thinking of God's sovereignty and his power and his purposes, you've heard this before probably. He says, expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Not that you're going to do it. 
But if we're engaged with what he's doing in the world, and it's his power that's at work in us, and we believe that, and we ask for anything in his name, it doesn't mean go out and do something stupid. But even in saying that, aren't I hedging my bet a little bit? Maybe, just maybe, God's through this saying, there's a power that I want to exert. I want to invite you into an experience of me and what I want to accomplish in this world that might get a little uncomfortable. It might stretch you beyond your comfort zone. But that's where his power shows up and does amazing things. That's what he's promised. That's what he says will happen as his church is on the move for his mission, on his mission, for his glory and his power. And that includes us. So let's maybe try to adopt that posture as we pray. Father, thank you for teaching us this night through your word. And uh, this is such a, a challenging thing because it's not something we can just tuck away. It stretches us. When you think about Peter and John, those words that they were ordinary people. There's nothing extraordinary about them, but there was this mark that they had been with Jesus. They'd been changed. They'd been empowered by the Holy Spirit, that same Spirit that lives in each of us as followers of you and as a church is at work among us. And so, Lord, we don't know what it'll mean, but we invite and ask that you would help us as a church, as a group of people called by your name and organized for ministry in this community in your name. Lord, we know you're inviting us to new things. That your heart is for blessing to go to the nations. Even for us, that means starting right here in this community. And so, Lord, as we go out of here this week, we do pray that you would give us a sense of humble dependence. But as we begin to look and all the other ordinary people around us. Would you help us to see with different eyes and perhaps have a bit of a hungry dissatisfaction, a hungry determination, and to ask for anything in your name, to expect great things from you, and to attempt great things for you. Lord, we are just so amazed that you would call us and invite us to be used for you for your glory. You don't need us, but in your plan, this is the way you've set it up. And we are blessed to be a part of it. So thank you for that. We love you and we praise your name this night. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're gonna